0: glad that you're here this morning uh if you're here visiting with us for the first time or if it's uh uh, a number of times that you've been here but you've never uh you've never filled out one of the the forms that was in the worship folder this morning we would love to uh we'd love to be able to greet you and keep you informed on on the things that are happening here at the church so if you could fill that out before you leave today and either place it in the offering basket or in one of the offering boxes, that would be fantastic. Uh, we're just so, we're so thankful that you're, you're here and we, we welcome you to be a part of the Risen King family. Um, one of the main things that we do in the fall, one of the, the, the things that we think is so important is that we get together in smaller groups that we call growth groups. Those growth groups have begun but it's not too late to, to be a part of them. This fall, all together as a church body, we are reading through the book of First Samuel. We have a, a devotional book that has readings for every day, it has little devotional uh, uh, commentaries, explanatory notes under the reading to help you understand uh, the text that you're reading. And, and we're reading it all together. We just feel like something happens when all of us are reading the same scripture together and we're all thinking together and praying together, that uh, it stirs up something in the heavenly realm and it makes a difference in our community. The other thing is this, that we really believe that life transformation happens powerfully here on our Sunday morning services when we're together in the manifest presence of God. But we think that a lot of unpacking and a lot of integration of what God is doing happens more readily in smaller groups. And we are, above all else, trying to form a community of faith here in Rockland County and in this area where where, um, believers experience God's presence in a way like never before. And so those small groups are just incredibly important to us as a way to build a spiritual family, a spiritual community together. And what's what's taking place that's been so wonderful for us is that those small groups become places of support, places of ministry. They become pastoral. Uh, many of the small groups have been uh, together in a way that they've been able to help people as they went to the hospital, as they had babies, as they went through difficulties financially. And that group becomes a family. And so there's all kinds of meetings that are taking place that you can join in. There are a number of them here on Sunday. There are a number of them throughout the week. Uh, we're doing one very different one on Wednesday night. We've we've not been doing it this way, but on Wednesday night, we're gathering together as a larger group to worship God together, to go over the message for the week from First Samuel. And then we are committing ourselves for the weeks that we're together. We're circling certain prayer requests, certain certain needs in our lives, and we're praying together for those needs for nine weeks, and uh, or the whole ten weeks, but we have nine left. And so any of you are invited on Wednesday night here at the church, 7 o'clock, I think there's childcare even, am I right? Six and under, okay. So you 40-year-olds, you can't go to the childcare, but... uh <laughs> uh 6 and under we have we have childcare and it we started this past week it was really a powerful time together we run about 7 to 8:30 and it's a uh, time of worship time of prayer time of looking uh, uh at the word together in a way that's very guided and directed so if uh any of you have not yet got your uh, devotional book we have a number of them left we have been uh, collecting about $3 just to kind of cover the cost of printing them. We do all these in-house. We made them our, ourselves. Lisa is the big driver and writer behind this, and it's an incredible book. I I have just been so blessed by the writing and, and just the direction that the Lord has given me as I read it. So just invite you to, to get, get one of these and read with us all during the week. Let's pray together as we look at God's Word. Father, as we... Uh, we come in your presence as we come to experience you and to encounter you in a, a fresh way um, we ask that those things that were prayed for in the scripture by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that those would be true right here right now that your spirit of truth would come upon us in such a way to lead us in all truth that your spirit of wisdom and revelation would would show us our inheritance, our riches that are ours in the word of God. That you would, uh, you would be upon us in a way to reveal, illuminate, and then cut away the things that bind us, to cut away the things that, that limit us, and to be able to, by your word, set us free. Your word is truth, and the truth sets us free. So we come, we come as those who are subscribers, we come as those who are submitted, we come to the, as those who are surrendered to the word and the will of God, even as Jesus taught us to, to pray, say, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, your kingdom come. We come under that word today, that we are those who are here to do your will, and we are those here who are to bring your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are, we're going through these 10 weeks. We're going through 1 Samuel. And I remind you that last week we started with chapter 1, and in chapter 1 we met this incredible godly woman by the name of Hannah. And in chapter 2, as you move to chapter 2, the prayer that she prayed has been uh, answered, and she has had a son, and she names him Samuel. And in the beginning of chapter 2, Hannah sings a song, and the the words of the song, the thoughts of the song, the theme of the song are very much like the themes that Mary sings when it's told to her that she would bear the Christ. And uh, as you look at that song, even though our main focus this morning is going to be on the call of Samuel, as you look at that song, I don't think... You should read over it and just pass over it because I think in the song that Hannah sings, you begin to see the heart of a truly surrendered, yielded woman of God. Now, some people were saying to me during the week that they somehow could not relate to Hannah because they're not looking for a baby, they're not desperate for a baby, or some of you are desperate not to have babies, and uh, uh, you know, all of these different reasons. And I, and I was thinking, man, that, that is a very narrow view of Hannah. Hannah is a representative here. She is a picture for all of us about the heart that moves the heart of God. When you look at Hannah and you see the desperation that she has and the tears that she cries, she doesn't care what's appropriate. She, she has something that's missing in her life. And the only one who can fill it is God. She has a sense of promise as to her purpose for her life, and it's not being fulfilled. It's actually being ridiculed. And so in her desperation, she comes before the Lord. She's a picture for all of us. And the, the idea here that you have to really understand to understand the Scriptures, is barrenness is something all of us experience. The idea of not experiencing the harvest in our life, not experiencing the fruit in our life, not feeling like we get past the walls in our life, not feeling like we have the impact that we think we should have. Barrenness is a picture in the Scripture of, 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 of not fulfilling your destiny of feeling like it's there and it gets taken from you, feeling like you're almost there and you get knocked back. Barrenness is a powerful picture of hopelessness. It's the power of despair. It's, it's, it's a picture of, of coming to a place of saying, I know there's more, and of not willing to settle for the less. And so Hannah, I mean, to me, Hannah is the, she's the woman I want to be. Because she, <laughs> I wondered how long it would take you to catch that. So you look at this and you, because sometimes, and the other thing is important, that I said it last week, I'll say it again. So often in the scriptures, it's men. And this is important that, that God is raising up, that the key to salvation history is a woman because it shows you how God views women. It shows you the importance, it shows you the role and if and, and if you any of you were to say, well, it, you know, it's a limited role to childbearing, that's not it here. It's not it because that's not all they that's not all they shared. They shared her prayers. They shared her song. They shared her life. Not just the one event of her life, but the whole of her life. And as a matter of fact, what we see in 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 1 Samuel, done again and again, and what we see here is that God uses, through the prophet writing the book, God uses stark contrast. He uses comparisons so that you can see where you stand with the Lord. On the one hand, in this second chapter, you have this amazing song of Hannah, and at the end of the chapter, you have the religious leaders, the priests over the country over the people of God, who are in charge with the, the worship of the Lord and the presence-keeping of the Lord, two guys by the name of Hophni and Phinehas, and they are as evil as can be. These are stark contrasts, and, and when the Lord does this, and he says, here's Hannah, where are you? And he says, here's Hophni and Phineas, where are you? And so you look at these two and 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 you can't just you can't run through this. You have to look at this and and begin to say what what is it that makes a woman like Hannah so connected to the Lord? What is it that that makes her different from every other person? And you look at the song and you can tell here here is here's what I see in her song. It says Hannah is a woman who trusts God and chooses to rejoice in him. She rejoices that he has chosen to use her to accomplish his larger purposes and will. Listen to what she says in her song My heart rejoices in the Lord. My heart exalts in the Lord. Now, you might be saying to me, it'd be easy for you to say, well, she got what she wanted when she prayed. Not exactly. Okay, she got a son that she had to give away. She had a child that she only gets to see once a year. One of the stories there in chapter 2 is every year she made him a little robe to go with his priestly garments. Can you imagine that? The son you would longed for, waited for, now you only get to see him once a year, and what he knows you is the woman who brings him clothes. I don't know about you at Christmas, but my kids are never that happy with underwear. Anybody, you know what I mean? You get them pajamas? They're like, thanks, Dad. You get a toy, they go, oh, this is what I always wanted. You know, and so the story says that the mom who weeped for him, desperate for him, gave her life for him, has to give him up. You have to hear this because this song doesn't make sense unless you know that piece. Because even having given him back to the Lord, she says, my heart rejoices in the Lord. Now, if you're honest and you say, whoa, wait a minute, that's Hannah? I'm not quite over there. Because if God gives me something, I'm going to keep it. This is going to be mine. I'm going to do with it what I want to do. Matter of fact, a lot of us think our money we got anyway, so it's ours to keep. A lot of stuff, we think we earned it. Who can take this away from me? And when he does, we don't say, my heart rejoices. We say, how could you do that to me? You see, you have, to, you have to begin to see if you really want to be the man or the woman of God that you have the potential to be, then you've got to start moving towards Hannah. You've got to start moving over here. And, and the way that you move over is you have to know who God is. It can't be the God of your imagination. Like many of you when, you, when something happens in your life, you go, I can't believe God did that. What you're saying is the God of my imagination would never have done that. Not the God who has revealed himself to you. There are many of us that harbor lots of bitterness with God because we don't want him to be God. We want him to be our God. We want him to be what we want him to be. Yes, the, the hard part is that you have no leverage to make him like that. And you will not have a relationship with an imaginary God. An imaginary God cannot answer your prayers. And so what does Hannah say? She says, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation there is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no right, no rock like our God. In other words, what she's saying is, I have learned to trust God in the dark places. This I, this impacted me really heavily. This this quote, I can't remember where I read it, so I can't give anybody credit for it. So I'll take credit for it. <laughs> nah. After reading Hannah's song, one commentator wrote, he said, it is a great thing to be subject to the majesty of God. I, I don't know how I can convince you of this, except just to keep pounding at you in this, but it, you don't want less than who God really is. You don't want to depend on a God you've made up. There is none like our God. There is no rock like our God, but our God is God. And so he can say to Hannah, Hannah, I will give you the baby, but you give him back. And Hannah, understanding what majesty it is to be subject to God, says, yes, Lord. Because every one of us in this room knows that when it came time to give that boy to the temple, she could have said no, because she already had her son. She already had the answer. She could have said, Lord, you were just kidding. You wouldn't have asked this of me. But she didn't. And when she turned her son over, her heart rejoiced to be a part of the big picture of God. Now you may say to me I'm not part of a big picture. You want to you better believe you are. I mean, you may be a you may be in some ways living as a little fish. But you're part of the big p- picture. Jesus calling on your life is very very straightforward. He said, "As the Father has sent me, so send I you." In other words, just as Hannah was a very essential person in the plan to save the world. So you are an essential person in the plan to save the world. But the issue is, will you give back to God what he has given to you? Or will you continue to say, this is mine. This is mine. In Hannah's relationship with God, she came to the place that not only was it okay that he was God, she rejoiced that he was God. Even though she had to turn her little Samuel, probably three, four years old, she had to turn him over to Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas. Because this little boy grew up under the tutelage of two of the most perverse priests that ever lived. And yet she said, I trust the one who's asking It is easy to trust God's providence in the pleasant places. It is not so easy to trust it in the dark places. And yet in your dark place, he's sovereign, just as he's sovereign in the pleasant places that he leads you to. Hannah knew that. Hannah calls to us and says, are you like me? Do you know him like I know him? Because there is a huge, there's a beautiful nobility that comes when you say, God, use me. God, make my life Make my life a vessel for you. When you do that, you can't hold back. You can't hold back. You can't say it and take it back. Because when you take it back, you put your hand to the plow and then you took it back. And Jesus said, don't do that. Hannah didn't do that. And a song erupted. You can't sing a song of praise unless you really mean it. No one can ever force you to sing a song of praise unless you really mean it. Now, on the other hand, there's this other, these two dudes named Hophni and Phinehas. They're in stark contrast to the godly woman, Hannah. They're these ungodly religious leaders. Now, one of the things that I think the more I study this and the more I look at this, these guys looked... See, to us, when I read this chapter, I think they're scummy. I mean, I, I just I think they're scuzzy. You know, I just think they're, they're like these awful, horrible people. But you know what? They wouldn't have gotten away with the things they got away with unless there was something about them that was powerful. They wouldn't have gotten away with what they, they got away with except that they had breeding and DNA and they had heritage. These guys are of the line of Aaron. They come down from the the best of families. They've been trained to be priests. They've been trained to be religious leaders. The whole nation acknowledges their position. But these are the kind of guys where power corrupts. See, they had spiritual authority. There's a, a beautiful way that God took care of his priests who were to take care of his people. In Leviticus 7, it says there, and it lays out the regulations and and the, the, the manner in which priests were both supposed to conduct themselves and how they were to provide for themselves. God wanted to, always has wanted to provide for the priest. He always wanted to do that. He laid it out in his very law. You will take care of the priest. But the power and position that they, they assumed, they began to take advantage of the people. In Leviticus 7, it says, that the priest every, every offering that comes in, the priest should have the breast and the right thigh. And what happened was that Phinehas and, and Hophni would, would take a fork, they had a 3 prong fork, and they'd stick it in, and they'd pull out whatever from the, like the stew that was made, they'd pull out whatever, and when they pulled it out, if they didn't like it, they'd go back in and they'd take it again and again until they got what they wanted. And eventually, the scripture says, they just, they just started checking out the meat before it ever got to the sacrifice. So they were getting the ribeyes, the T-bones, the porterhouses, and the uh, New York Strip, right? You know, And they were, they were taking it for themselves so that it never actually got to the sacrifice. And they were bullying and manipulating the people in such a way that the people couldn't resist them. Then it says that there were women who served in the presence of the Lord, women who came to minister to the Lord, and they would take their position and they would take their authority and they would take their their power, and by that advantage, they would then sleep with these women. So they they would take their priestly role and use it to an advantage to get control over vulnerable women. And not only that, they would actually do it in the place of meeting. So that they were defiling with their abuse and their, 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 uh, you know, they're taking advantage of these situations. They would defile the holy place of God in order to satisfy their unholy appetites. It's a very classic kind of thing. It, sometimes people say the Bible is, is so old it can't be relevant. Let me tell you. Nothing changes. When people have power, it corrupts them, as it did in the old, it does in the new. And when people have power, it almost always corrupts them in three ways. They, how they use the power, that they abuse the power. How they handle sex, because they use their position to get their carnal needs met. And then how they deal with money or resources. That's exactly what happened with Hophni and Phinehas Instead of being used by God, they use God to get their pleasures. So here you have this contrast: you have you have Hannah, who says, "Lord, use me because you're God." And you have Hophni and Phineas, and says, "There won't be any consequences. We'll use God." Now it doesn't say there if they believed in God. It doesn't say there if they had any. Kind of experiences with God, but what we see from their actions is they didn't fear God. What we see from their actions is there was no accountability. Now, I always try to be careful with this kind of stuff. Because I I don't want to offend anyone unnecessarily. Okay, it's not, it's not, but it is important that you understand you don't need a priest. You don't need a priest. You have the high priest. You don't need someone to stand between you and God and speak for God to you or speak to God for you. You have the great high priest. Every priest of the Old Testament had to go make sacrifice for himself before he could make sacrifice for the people because all of us are broken. All of us are twisted. If any one of us in this room, if the spotlight of God's holiness comes upon us, we are far more like Hophni and Phineas than we're like Hannah. <laughs> I, mean, I I know this is kind of a dumb illustration, but but you know, when the light is low, my skin looks lovely.
1: <laughs>
0: okay, it looks it looks fine. I go, oh, for fifty five, you look pretty good, you know. But you turn that fluorescent on of this spotlight that's melting me right now. (laughs) Every blemish, every scar, every, you know, it's terrible. At 55, there's still pimples and blackheads, you know? And and it's all there, and you go, oh, I am so, I'm so marked. It depends on the degree of the light. Every one of us is broken. Every one of us is scarred. Every one of us put into the wrong position. We abuse our power. Isn't it interesting the fruit of the Spirit isn't control of others, it's self-control? I mean, I may not like it, but within me, within you, is the capacity of Hophni and Phineas. Sometimes just not the opportunity. It's certainly the capacity. And If you don't believe me, think about Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah is a man of God. I mean, he, he compares favorably to us. He gets in the presence of God, and suddenly it's not low candlelight. It is laser light. And he goes, woe is me. I'm broken. I'm a man undone. I'm a man undone. You know, I, I, I can sit there and say, this guy, these guys are terrible, they're awful, they're everything, but all of us are broken without Jesus. All of us are undone, and the fire of God reveals our need. There's a story, uh, I didn't get to tell this in the first one, but I, there's a story that, that I found as I was getting ready for this week that touched me. A man by the name of Ironside used to tell this story. They said, they said when the, when the um, settlers started heading west into Minnesota and, and the plains states and stuff, there was this phenomenon that would take place that, that there would be what seemingly looked like spontaneous grass fires that would begin to, to occur. And so the, 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 the settlers, as they were moving by wagon, they sometimes would see this very ominous and threatening smoke in the distance. And one of the one of the jobs of the scouts was to was to, to alert the, the wagon train that there's a fire ahead. And so what they would do is everybody would stop. They would get in. They would uh, get into a, a place, get in together to a place, and they would set that place on fire. And then, then they would move their wagons, the kids, their cattle, they would move everything, and they'd move it into the burned-out part. So that when the fire came, they were in a part that had already been burned. And the fire could not consume them. It would end. And Ironside tells a story, this story, and he says, you and I, through Jesus, we're on ground that's already been burned fire cannot touch us the fire cannot destroy us and when i when i heard that and i hope i'm conveying it to you in the way that it was conveyed to me when i heard that i just went thank you jesus because i might want to be hannah but religious stuff is not hannah this is broken stuff desperate stuff that says i only can stand in the fire because i've already been with the one who's already burned but most of us are a little closer to Hophni and Phineas than we'd like. We may can always find someone worse than us. But I don't see anything in Scripture that says when you stand before the great throne of God that He's going to say, how do you compare? He's going to reveal your broken places. And the beauty of it is if you've given your life to Jesus, then you say, I stand and burned ground. Fire can't touch me here. Well, the backdrop of that then is this guy Samuel. I mean, this this little guy—he's three, four years old—and he's put been put into this place with uh, Hophni and Phinehas. So, could you read this out loud with me? You guys tracking with me this morning? Yes, sir. All right, Alan is, so that's all that matters. <laughs> all right, ready? Let's read out loud together. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. Then the Lord called Samuel, and he said, "'Here I am,' and ran to Eli, and said, "'Here I am, for you called me.' But he said, "'I did not call, lie down again.' So he went and lay down. And the Lord called again, Samuel, and Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, "'Here I am, for you called me.' But he said, "'I did not call, my son, lie down again.' Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. And the Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place, and the Lord came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Now can you just hold on for a minute on that and just let how sweet that is. How sweet that is some of you think God only calls once. He actually calls till your answer. He calls till your answer because He wants you to come because you want to. Some others have over the years tried to make this a very unique calling like it's just Samuel's calling. I really believe this is a pattern of calling. I believe this is the way God calls. I believe with all of my heart and One of the things that I just push and push and push is that since I have heard the voice of God, I want every believer to hear and distinguish and know the voice of the Lord. Because He's speaking. God is not silent. You may not have your radio tuned to the right channel, but He is not silent. He speaks, and He will always speak. And some people have sometimes said to me, Well, he spoke like that in the Old Testament. Listen to me. In the New Testament, it says this. The things that God does in the New Testament are far greater than what he did in the Old Testament, so much so as to make the Old Testament obsolete in comparison. So if he did something wonderful in the Old Testament, how much more will he do it in the New Testament? How do we have less when he's always said we have more? And so it is for us to know the voice of God and to hear the voice of God, and it is a call on your life. You see, it's important that we get in this, this passage a couple of things. The first one is this, and I don't know how many teenagers I have in here, and I don't know if any of the teenagers are still listening. Hard enough for the older people to listen, but uh, any of the younger ones who are listening to me right now, would you, would you hear my voice on this? Everyone will tell you that you cannot resist the world. Everyone will tell you that there is no choice but for you to give in and have exactly the same behavior, attitudes, and experiences of all your peers. The Bible says differently. As a matter of fact, it gives us two examples of teens who were radically, radically different and who are the role models for our lives. When When I was a kid... A teenager, and all the hormones overwhelm me, and all suddenly girls look pretty and not had cooties and uh, <laughs> all of that kind of stuff, and everything. And it is a flood and it is an avalanche, and it's never easy at all. And there's more accessibility to destroy your innocence today than there ever was. But it was also so in Joseph's day. The biblical figure of Joseph, he had more attack on his life. He even had his his master's wife say, sleep with me, knowing that if he didn't do what she wanted him to do, it would cause incredible consequences to his life, which it did. He could have been killed. He was jailed for it. And she even said to him, nobody will know. My husband won't care. Nobody will care. We can do this. And Joseph said, God will know. And you may, you may think that's a small thing, but it is a huge thing if you begin to realize I have an ultimate future, there is ultimate truth, and one of the simple ramifications of ultimate truth is whatever you do, the one who loves you, who died for you, who is calling you by name, sees you. And so when you decide not to do what everyone else is doing sexually, and you decide not to do what everyone else is doing financially, and you decide not to do what everyone else is doing, he sees you. He sees you and he cares. And it matters. Yes, is there forgiveness? Of course. There's a, there are tons of us in here screwed up our entire teenage life, who made all the wrong decisions, and yet God can redeem even what we blew. But there's not a one of us that's honest to say, I want to go back and do it stupidly again. The Bible says, it is good to bear the yoke of the Lord in your youth. But here's this story is even bigger in many ways. This story is even bigger because it says not only is there behavior that the Lord looks upon, not only are there attitudes and and, and, and morality that the Lord looks upon. But there's a call on your life that God wants to meet every one of us in the fire of his manifest presence. And when he does, he can do it in your bedroom, he can do it in your basement, he can do it at church, he can do it in the youth group. And when he does, he's calling you by name. He's saying, you are special. I went to a pretty dead Presbyterian church when I was 12, 13 years old. The pastor was a mess. He was having an affair with the organist. His son was my best friend. Her daughter was was a friend of ours. We all knew what was going on. I mean, it was just a wreck of a church. It was just a mess of a church. It was kind of a Hoffney and Phineas kind of church in many ways. But there was a Sunday night I can't remember if I was 12 or 13. It was one of those two. It was a Sunday night where God showed up. There was an evangelist there. He called, and he said, God is calling some of you to full-time ministry. The, for me, the, I could still see the sanctuary glowing with the glory of God. I remember holding on to the pew and try, and getting white-knuckled at the pew. And my mother, who sometimes could just see simply, she goes, uh, I think this was for you. And I went forward and I gave my life, gave my life to serving the Lord full time for the rest of my life. And it was so real to me, but no one explained to me it was God's manifest presence. No one explained to me. They just thought it was nice that a 12-year-old came forward. And no one nurtured that in me at all. No one even said, "That's great and that wonderful, but it was real to me. And you know what? When I faced my friends and my peers and stuff and all of the temptations and all the pressures, you know what I said to them? I am called of God. It gave a nobility to to me in that adolescence. It gave clarity to me because I said, I'm called of God. People will come up to me, because I was a good student. People would come up to me and say, Are you gonna be a lawyer? No, I'm gonna be a I'm gonna be a pastor. Are you gonna be a doctor? No, I'm gonna be a missionary. You know, I are you going to, you know, he's a teacher, and they'd say all these things that I'd say, no matter, you know, to all of them. And in my uh, 12th grade year in a public school, every morning they asked me to pray for the school on the loudspeaker. And I gave a devotional and prayed out loud. My poor brother, who was, who was in rebellion, I used to embarrass him every morning, of course. And his friends would go, Is that your brother? My poor little brother would say, as good as he is, that's how bad I am, because it was just so hard on him. But there is something about, there is something about this story that I really would like that as teenagers, as adolescents, or even as teenagers or whatever you might be, that you recognize that what is a lifeline in a a sewage-type world is the call of God. And he does it not just for Samuel, he does it for everyone. And if you look at this story, there's no reason why Samuel should be godly. And yet, the scripture says, just like it did with Jesus, it said, He grew in favor with men and God. The favor of the Lord was upon him. I I can't imagine, can you, those of you who have kids or grandkids, or that you're friends with, the other young people, whatever it is, can you imagine a better thing on the life of a young person than to be able to say all the days of your life you, you, you didn't rebel against the Lord, but the favor of the Lord was on you. That you lived and you learned. I, I'm 55 trying to learn how to live in the favor of the Lord in some ways because of some areas of my life where, where no one ever you know, developed or mentored me or told me, you know, you can't go this way without consequences. And many of you, some of the twisted things that you're dealing with in your middle age are because of your teenage years and because of lies that you believed and ways that you protected yourself and ways that you tried to satisfy yourself that have created bonds with things of this world that have kept you in limitations. When you hear the call of God, it's a lifeline. It may seem to be very grandiose in a way for me to say this, but I believe, I'm convicted, that one of, my, one of the main jobs of ministry is to empower you to be great. It's not my job, my job to be great, it's my job to empower you to be great, and that there is a nobility among men and women of God, children of God, that needs to come forth. I believe it comes forth as you hear the call of God. And I believe it doesn't matter if it's a desert place that you're in, if it's a desperate place that you're in, if it's an ungodly office you're in or school you're in. Whatever it is, Samuel, in the midst of some of the most ungodly, perverse, religious, superstitious nonsense, flourished. No one mentored him. As a matter of fact, even Eli had to be forced to tell him that might be God's voice. We can't keep making excuses and say, well, it's just too hard in New York. can't make excuses and say, oh, it was easy back then. It's, e- it's hard now. See, I don't, I don't believe those excuses really hold. I think in the end, if you, you begin to realize, I'm a Hannah, I'm a Samuel. This is who I am. This is my identity. I, this is who I'm going to live as. This is how I'm going to live. And you you're going to begin to see a change in your life. Now, there's a couple of things as we move towards the end of this that I think are extremely important. One is this. It says, when the call came to Samuel, it says the word of the Lord was rare. What, what you've got to see is that is as powerful a statement of barrenness as not having a baby. Because when the word of the Lord is rare, then no one's listening. See, it's not because he's not speaking. A lot of people go in this, in this and say, well, there weren't prophets then. Let me tell you something. There weren't people who wanted to listen to prophets. God doesn't waste his word. As a matter of fact, one of the beautiful things about Samuel's call, it says that not only was God with him, all the days of his life, but all his words hit their mark. There's a prophetic word in Hebrew is that when God is with you and you speak, those words, it says, don't fall to the ground. (laughs) And it said, Samuel, for all the days of his life, God was with him and not a word of his ever fell to the ground. You see, it isn't the absence of the prophetic, it's the absence of listening ears. It's an absence of, of open hearts. I mean, what this story speaks of t- to me, and it tells me the priority of God. And if I'm going to align myself with God's will, then I have to know God's priorities. If I'm going to see barrenness turn into fruitfulness and... and And influence, and I'm gonna see impact from power, then my alignment has to be with the priority of God. It can't be with something else. Notice a couple of things here, okay? One, what's the name of this book? First First Samuel. Now, in this book, it tells about kings, some of the most famous kings of all time, King Saul, King David, but it's not First Saul, and it's not First David not 1st Solomon. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. God's priority is not the king. See, sometimes your priority my priority is power, influence, control. We even pray, Lord, give me more control, give me more power, give me this, give me that. Now what we're doing is we're really saying, I want to be a king. You know, maybe the, you're the king of nothing, but you, you know, you still want it. It's like I want to be in control. Moms want to control their kids and their husbands sometimes. <laughs> I mean, you got You got to understand. There's a, there's some really powerful stuff here if you'll listen to me. When you go straight to the ki- to the kingly role, you'll never be a good king. You'll rule, but you'll take advantage. You won't have the character for it, and you'll abuse, and you'll take advantage. But if you'll listen to this scripture and see what's going on, the first call was to the prophet. What's God's priority? His word. What does God elevate? His word. Don't ever try to be a king without knowing his word. Alignment with his word makes all the difference. You want to know the favor of God? You want to have answered prayer? Align your life with his word. You can be religious without his word. You know, you can take what you want. You can get what you want. You can do with all your power, because even though you may think you're powerless, you're not. Every person in here is far more powerful than they think they are. And Oftentimes, the one who withdraws is the most powerful person in the room. Everybody's powerful in here. And you can go ahead and you can extort and manipulate and bully and be a martyr and do all of those things, but it will not satisfy you or break your heart. Or you can go back and say, how do I align my life with the word of God? Now, when I was a kid, this message would have mostly been this. Go study your Bible, find out what it says, and do it. Well, I was so messed up from such a messed up home, I couldn't do that. So I tried, I memorized Scripture, I listened, I I listened to people preach on it, I listened to people talk on it, but everything that I was learning from Scripture was going through my need to control everybody else. I so desperately wanted people to like me and love me and everything I was doing, even when I would preach, it was like, do you like me? Do you like me? Do you like me? Because I was messed up. I mean, I, I just can't get away from that fact that my flesh is a Hophni and Phineas flesh. That the only way that I have been able to really take God's word and begin to hear it from his heart And I've really been able to take His Word and give it away to others is because I know His voice. See, I believe you can study and memorize all of Scripture, and it's good for you to do so. And still not know Him. The Bible points to Him; it is not Him. So it's so important what what I drive home as hard as I can is his voice needs to be distinguished from every other voice look at Samuel Samuel was a godly young man he was innocent he had a purity to him he didn't even know the voice that was speaking to him he thought it was Eli he went three times three times he went to Eli and he said why'd you call me Now, there's an interesting thing because there's kind of a play on words in this passage where young Samuel's job is to keep the lamp of the light of the Lord's presence burning by the ark in the inner chamber. And it's a picture of the darkness out in the world and of Samuel's call to be a light in the darkness. And even this picture where he's laying there, he's laying there just in case the light goes out so they can jump up and he can refill it and he can relight it. So even before God ever calls him, there are pictures happening in his life that tells him what his life is going to be about. In the midst of a season that ends in the Judges, that ends the book of Judges, it says, everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. You know what that means? They're listening to the wrong voice. Every one of you, you have thoughts, you have influences. Sometimes if you're really aware of what's going on, it sounds like your mom or your dad or your coach or it sounds like somebody who hurt you. And those voices that you hear are not your voice. My contention is this, that the safest place on earth for you should be right in here. But in order for that to happen, you have to say no to the wrong voices, which deceive you into believing you're doing what you want to do, but really are capturing you in, in slavery. And you listen to that one voice, the one voice that calls you in the night, the one voice that calls you by name, the one voice that calls you again and again and again in your car, calls you when you're running or when you're walking, calls you when you least expect it sometimes and calls you by name and the answer to that voice is speak for your servant is listening. There's nothing, there's nothing more beautiful than when the pursued stops running and says, you're calling my name. And, and it, is not, it is not an impossibility that you will know his voice above every other voice. And once you do, there's no other voice that you want. Now, the story tells us <laughs> that the ministry he called Samuel to, to started off with a bang. Some of us, we get to wade in. Poor Samuel, he got to jump in the deep end. Because the Lord laid out for him the first prophetic message, the per- first sermon he ever preached, only to one person, but the first message he ever preached the first message he ever gave was, Eli, your family's going to be killed. Eli, uh, Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, because of their disobedience and because of the, the defilement that they've done in my house, I'm going to wipe them off the face of the earth. And he says, there's only going to be one of the relatives left, and that one relative is only going to be left so that he will remember. Can you imagine that as your first sermon? I bet the offering at the end was not so great. <laughs> you know what it was? it was? It was a test. Can you deliver the hard news? That's truth. Can you deliver the bad news? See, in some ways, if all we ever do is pump each other up and say, oh, you're great, you're wonderful, but we never tell the truth, then all we are, are a bunch of Hophni and Phinehas. It's only when we can say the hard truth out of love, because he really loved Eli, and he didn't want to see this happen, and he didn't want to tell him. And the message, see, that he had for Eli had no escape. The beauty of being a New Testament prophet every message has a way out. It's that burned grass. Every barrenness has fruit to come, a harvest to come. Every time when the, words, the word of the Lord is rare, revival can come. But I believe today, if you hear me, I believe the priority of God is this. Will you commit yourself to my word? Will you commit yourself to my voice? Both the word written and the word spoken. Because they go together. If you only have the word written, you usually become kind of a dried up orthodox religious superstitious person. But if you and those who only have his word spoken don't don't always have discernment about what he really says. I can see often those on Facebook who are friends of mine who do not study his word. I know it immediately because they say stupid things that they think are wise. <laughs> and I don't put like on them. I'm telling, I'm, I'm just being very straight with you right now because it's, it's time for us to make a decision. We are not going to be wise just because we're wise in our own minds. We're only going to be wise if we align ourselves to the eternal truth of God's word. But at the same time, it's not mere study, it's relationship with the word himself. Jesus is the word. He's the word incarnate. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. It's alignment with him and his word that then makes you wise, even in an age of darkness. Um Eleanor, would you mind coming up and standing with me? Dan and Nancy, would you come? Is Lisa in here? Would you come? Jude, you and Joanne, would you come? Now, I've asked some of the leaders of our church, prayer leaders, ministry leaders, I've asked them to come and stand with me because I I want to ask them this question. I'm going to put them on the spot. People always know this about me. If you get close to me, you get put on the spot. Right, Jude?
1: Yes.
0: All right. Is it your commitment As a man or woman of God, is it your commitment before this congregation to be a person wholly committed to his word, both what he's written and what he says to you? Do you think it makes a difference in your life? Do you believe with me and agree with me that as a church, this is our job? That it's not the methods of men or the new whatever technologies or anything else, but it's commitment to the word, commitment to hearing his voice that will take us into this time where in a sense God's word is rare. Does that make sense to you guys tonight? Or this morning? <laughs> I preach so long it seems like night. sometimes. This for me is really, really important. I, I had not seen this as clearly as I saw it this morning. You cannot see the kind of rule in your life until you have given the surrender to the word. You'll not have the marriage in your life and of your life till you surrender to the word. If 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 you do like so many, like, oh you know, I'm attracted to the prayers answered like Hannah, but I still want to do my own thing in terms of my sexual life, my financial life, my time, my talents, all this stuff. And if you dabble in the word and, and 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 have another foot in the world, you'll find you're a miserable person. What I've found over the years is that people who are all in are full of joy, like Hannah. People that are part, part in and, and, and part out are the most miserable people because they have the Spirit of God, but they're divided. They've either quenched or grieved the Spirit, so the Spirit himself is weeping inside of them. And so you can't even enjoy the things of the world because the Holy Spirit's crying. And I mean, people that are completely out, they're pretty happy because they're clueless. They have no idea about holiness. They're like, well, I'm more moral than some other people. So those ones who are like half in and half out, probably either get in or get out. And and put your family in that position. There's a number of us married couples up here. We won't make it without Jesus. And and it's not just Jesus in a nice way making all our trash into something wonderful. It's Jesus transforming our character. You know, because my wife has had to endure having married a teenager in an adult body and in order for me to be the husband she wanted me to be it was a character issue and I had to become a man instead of a boy and the only way I could do that was his voice and his word and I bucked him and I fought him a lot but I have found that being all in like Hannah being all in like Samuel the Lord is with me His favor is on me. There's nothing that I would trade for that. There's no sexual experience I would trade for that. There's no taking advantage of people. I'd rather be poor and have his favor than be rich and have manipulated people. I know, I'm pushing you pretty hard because I, I really want us here. Not just individually, but as families. So I've asked these guys to stand up here. I'm going to ask them to pray over you, if it's you individually, if it's you as a family. But I'm asking you to commit to not dabble anymore, but to come on and say, here, here I am. Here's my family. Here's what I'm willing to do. I'm willing to commit to your word. If you come as a couple, I think it's better. If you can't come as a couple, I understand. But the goal is to get here as a couple. If you're coming as an individual, come and give it all. Don't hold back. All right, so stand up with me. You can hear, I have my forceful voice on right now. This is my old principal voice when I was a a principal in a high school voice, okay? Some of you are scared because you used to get detention with this kind of stuff, okay? But it's really my concern voice. I don't want you half in, half out. I want you all the way in. I want you to know the fullness of what it is to be able to sing with joy in the dark places, in the light places, but to know his presence and to know his favor all the days of your life. So I'm going to ask you right here in front of the whole community, come as a family. Come come over here and let Ju- Judah and Joanne pray for you. Come as an individual. Come have Eleanor pray for you. Come have... You know, Dan and Nancy pray for you. Have Lisa pray for you. Come on and do it now. Don't wait. The line will get long. So you need to come on now. Come and do this. Some of you, your marriages are not what they should be. They're not in the Word. Family's not in the Word. We need to get get there. We need to have this happen. Jan, come on up. I didn't see you back there. Bob, you and Ricky, come on. You want to come up? Sometimes I can't see the elders. uh, Come on. You got some prayer folks right here. These two together. Come on.